Some of you are familiar with the Ten Commandments. Some of you are not. You know, the stats would show that more people in our society can name all the members of the Beatles more than they can list off the Ten Commandments. In fact, and I don't know when this, I, I, got a, I, I didn't do enough deep research on this stat, but I saw this stat this week, that it's also true that more Americans can name all the kids from the Brady Bunch. Now, I have no idea how that's possible, because that, is so, that show is so old. And I'm saying that to be really offensive to some of you. Um, but yes, in fact, there are stats that at some point in America that uh, there are more, more people could name the kids from the Brady Bunch that could list off commandments, all the commandments. Yeah, if you were to walk around the street, you know, Jay Leno used to do this and various, uh, you know, late night TV guys would go and, and ask various American historical questions or political questions about various things like who's the president or who's the first president or various like obvious and easy answers and walk around the streets of America and it is very disconcerting. I think the same could be said about American Christians. Do we even know the Ten Commandments anymore? Well, we're going to look at them, and we're going to look at them in depth, in depth over the course of this semester. <laughs> so invite your friends <laughs> uh, to come hear the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, is we're going to look, as we saw this morning, at the, uh, what was called by the Confessions, the Introduction. God's introduction to the Ten Commandments, to the giving of the law. The law is found in two places. Exodus chapter 20 is more famously known as where you can see the Ten Commandments given, but it is also given in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and 6, and that's where we're going to look this morning is Deuteronomy chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. Hear God's words. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. And he said, that is Yahweh said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stand forever. And indeed, Jesus says it, right? Not a jot or a tittle will pass away from the law until Christ's return. Well, did you know what the, the longest chapter in the whole Bible is about? What's the longest chapter in the whole Bible? Psalm 119. And Psalm 119, the theme of Psalm 119 is this, by the psalmist. Oh, how I love God's law. Oh, how I love to hear from God's law. Chapter, Psalm 119, verse 16 says this, I will delight in your statutes. That's not statues, statutes. The commandments that God gives us. I will not forget your word. Psalm 119 verse 47 says, For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Uh, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. In fact, Psalm, the Psalms begin in Psalm 1, talking about the man who is blessed, that he is a man who delights in the law of God. He meditates on it day and night. Psalm chapter 19, not 119, 19, verses 7 through 10 say this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The psalmist goes out of his way and waxes eloquently and with the effusiveness of a lover and his delight about the law of God. Now besides the speed limit and don't murder, I'm not sure Americans know much about the law. 
In fact, most of us, if we were to read a law book, we would fall asleep. In fact, early in the middle part of my kind of teenage years, I thought maybe I was, I was thinking about maybe going towards law, and my mom, and a desire to cultivate this in me, got William Blackstone's old book on the law, and I began to read it. It took about a chapter and a half, and I decided I did not want to be a lawyer. The law is boring. No one delights in the law except for the most bizarre people in society. (laughs) And yet what we see is that the psalmist delights in the law. In fact, we also see that Jesus loves the law and the Apostle Paul rejoices because of the law. But here's the question for us. How do you view the law? How do you view the law? The law has, for various reasons, fallen on hard times in the mouth of Christians. I would say in most evangelical circles now, the law, the law is something that is almost despised. It is, it is ignored. We don't know it. We don't study it. We don't write catechisms about it. We don't have our children memorize about the implications of the law for our life. We don't think about the law. We actually try to think about it as little as possible. And in large part, that's because so many of us were raised in churches that also abused the law. And not because they didn't talk about the law very much, but because of the way they talked about the law. The law was a hammer and a sickle to beat you into submission, to crush you and to kill you, to ruin your joy in life. And that, in fact, that's how much many of us view the law. In fact, that's how we view God's law. That God's law is there to kind of suck the joy out of my life. My wife and I had a funny moment like kind of about this and realizing this with one of our kids this week. Um, our son goes to a preschool in the area in which on Facebook they will post pictures of various things that they did in, in, from the classroom that day. And, and one of the classes this week in Drew's class, they, um, they, they were learning about um, the red light, green lights. And so the, 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 the teacher put up a red light or a stop sign up on um, the board. And then she had listed the names of the kids and the, the answers, the things that they thought of when they saw a stop sign. And other kids th- thought of like stopping the car and stop, don't run. Or other kids thought about the opposite of green light or I want to go. Our, our, our son, we scroll down, we look at where's Drew's answer? Drew's answer is down at near the bottom, and it says this, Mommy says. <laughs> Mommy says. Mommy says, stop. <laughs> Mommy says, stop. And that's, that's, that's how many of us view God and his law. The God is just there as a giant killjoy, telling us to just stop it. You stop your fun. Kids, stop running in the sanctuary and stop playing on the drums and stop doing things that you really want to do. Well, we're beginning a new series this morning where we're going to be looking at the law of God, the commandments of God. And historically, what has been known as the Ten Commandments are actually what literally in the Hebrew is the Ten Words. And my hope is this, that in the course of the next 10 to 12 weeks, that there would be a corrective in our view of the law for the Christian. That we would be a people individually and a church as a whole that delight in the law of God, who speak of it like the psalmist does, who see the law of God as critical to pleasing the Lord, as critical to loving the Lord, as critical to raising our children, and as critical to enjoying life, and indeed as critical to being a witness to the world around us. And so where we begin this morning is the introduction or the prologue to the Ten Commandments as a means of beginning to reshape our overall view of the law of God. To rightly understand that God's commandments are given to us not to be a killjoy, but for quite the opposite, for your freedom and for your joy in life. And therefore, we've got to reshape our expectation and our perspectives on the law of God. And I see three ways we can do that this morning, all in one verse from our text. One verse from our text. It's what we read and stated in the catechism this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6. You can also find this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. And God says this. These are the last words he gives before he's going to lay down the Ten Commandments. And it's this. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is one of the most, in context, important passages in all of Scripture. 
And it's important for you to have a right view of the Ten Commandments and the law of God. In order to delight, that's the question, we want to delight. In order to delight in the law of God, we must first see the Ten Commandments in this way. In light of God's authority over us. In light of God's authority over us. That's your first point this morning. If you're going to delight in God's law, you must see the Ten Commandments in light of God's authority over us. How does God introduce himself in giving the Ten Commandments to the Israelites? I am the Lord. God introduced himself by this name. It is the Hebrew word Yahweh. I am who I am. I am who I say I am. That's who I am. That's my name. Yahweh. I am the God who made the heavens and the earth. And here we see that God, and actually in, you look at Exodus chapter 20, and here in the context of Deuteronomy chapter 5, that when God says, I am the Lord, it is not a piddly voice like mine, but it is like a thunder coming down from Sinai. I am the Lord, your God. He says it with dramatic effect that would awaken the sleepiest of Israelite and make them shaking in their boots. And he is reminding us first and foremost of who is giving us these commands. It is the creator and ruler of all. He has authority to command our obedience. Notice just the events of some of the things, that, the way God describes and the people's reaction to God's presence in their midst. In Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 4, says this, The Lord spoke with you face to face out at the mountain, out of the midst of fire. In verse 22, later on in the same chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 5, it says this, These words of the Lord spoken to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. I want you to see in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and Exodus chapter 20 that when the people of Israel get God's law, they are shaking and quaking in their boots. They are in awe. Of this God. They are in awe of him. When God says my name is the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the creator and ruler. I am the one who has authority over your life. That is the question that has to be answered. If we're going to see the law as delights. It's the authority question. You see many people like to give us laws. Right? You ever played with little kids? You ever played a game? If you remember, maybe you, it's been a long time since you played a game with little kids. When you play a game with little kids, what is always changing in the midst of a sports game with a five-year-old? The rules are always changing. But you're, you're, I tagged you. You're right. No, 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 no. no you got to tag me with two hands. Two hands. It doesn't matter that 30 seconds ago, I tagged you with one hand. And that was good enough. I'm changing the rules. The question in regards to who gives you commandments is who is giving the commandments? Who, who put you in charge? Anyways, God, what gives you the gall to come down from Sinai and tell us what to do? And God says, I am who I am. That's who tells you what to do. This, this is a key issue. We have to deal with this issue of authority first. A word about authority because the cultural moment demands it. So we live in a ray, an age of radical autonomy. And by that, I don't simply mean that we like to have free will. But what we, how we define free will is this. Is that no one can tell me what to do ever, anywhere, at any time. No one. I get to decide all things. Let me illustrate this way. There's a t-shirt that I think speaks to the, the spirit of our age that I, that I heard about recently. It said this on the t-shirt. You be you. You do you for you. You be you. You do you for you. Now, I thought it was an interesting perspective because on the back side of the shirt, it said, that is depression. That is depression. The radical autonomy of our world is killing us. That we think that we are in charge of our lives. That what we feel, that that the basis of morality is how I feel. And I can't question your morality because you might have a different feeling than I feel. But authority introduces us to something that is beyond our feelings. It introduces us to something that is clear, that is solid, that is objective. If the God of the universe, the one who made you, gives you commandments, then that is an objective authority. God's authority of your life gives you something solid. And this is something we desperately need. Without authority... You will live absolutely adrift in your life. 
We don't know what to live for. We don't know how to live. And a cultural, in our cultural moment, our personal autonomy, our love for ourselves, our sense that no one can tell me what to do, that there is no objective purpose of my life, is what it has led to is unmitigated anxiety because of our ambiguity about life. There is what I want to communicate to you here is why in, you're like, this whole authority thing doesn't sound that delightful, but here's how, why it is delightful. There is delight in following an objective authority because in that there is actually great freedom. There is great freedom. There is great joy. We view the law as enslaving us is to bondage, as stunting our self-actualization, when actually the law is providing you the fences that you need in order to run with freedom and joy in this world. G.K. Chesterton talks about this in his book, Orthodoxy, and it applies, though, to the law. He says this. He gives this illustration. We might fancy some children playing on the flat, grassy top of some tall island in the sea. So long as there was a wall around the cliff's edge, they could fling themselves into every frantic game and make the place the noisiest of nurseries. But when the walls were knocked down, leaving the naked peril of the precipice, they did not fall over. But when their friends returned to them, they were all huddled in terror at the center of the island, and their songs had ceased." That when we live in a world that is boundless, in other words, with no fences, with no rules and authority, then we are people that have run amok and are adrift. And actually we see fear in all sorts of places. To reject God's authority is to embrace a life of anxiety in which you're always wondering, what is my purpose? How do I live in this world And you're surrendering the opportunity for real joy. But the view of the Israelites, what I want to show you in Deuteronomy, the view of a good Israelite, how they were supposed to see the law was that the law was for their good. Not for their slavery. Not to ruin their fun. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 20 and 24. God tells us why we should talk to our kids about the law. He says this. And when your sons ask you in time to come. What is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded us? Then you shall say to your son. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he had swore to our forefathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. The view that God has for his rules and his laws and his commandments and the rules that Israelites are supposed to have and the rules that you ought to have is this, is that God's laws were given for your good. For your good. Laws show us how life really ought to work. How life works best. There is a moral arc to the universe. And to reject it is to reject it at your own peril. Laws are good, therefore you're good for your life. Life is, just think about it this way, life is immeasurably better because we have laws. In large part, America is economically successful, not so much just because of our capitalism, but because of our rule of law. Just think about this. Without patent and intellectual property laws, what wouldn't happen? No one would be encouraged to be creative and to design and to develop because you would not be compensated for doing those things. Without auto and road laws, driving. Have you ever been to a third world country? Every time you get into a car, you're taking your life into your own hands. Now that is somewhat true here as well, but it is frightening to go to any other place and drive. You have these road laws. What does it allow for us as a country? Because we have auto and commerce laws. We can get to places more quickly. We can get there safely. And because of that, we make more money. And there is prosperity that comes about. There is land rights. 
One of the greatest ways in which you grow and develop wealth over a long period of time is owning property without land rights, without laws. You can go out down to the courthouse here in Carrollton and you see these stacks of these old-looking books in which it has deed rights to the lands, little parcels of land all over Carrollton. And those things are so important because upon that foundation, wealth is developed here. Life flourishes. To live your life under the authority of God is to live a life, and to live by his commands is to live a life that will look like flourishing. This is what Proverbs is all about. Proverbs is about the application of the law to real life and what it looks like to flourish as you apply God's law in a wise way. God gives us his law not to restrict our joy, not even to necessarily to restrict our freedoms, but to give us delight, to give us joy, and to give us freedom. That's the first thing you've got to see. You'll never delight in God's law until you see the authority God gives us and the freedom that comes by following his authority. Second, second you've got to have this change of perspective about the law of God. You've got to see it in view of God's covenant with us. God's covenant with us. Look at that same phrase, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6. I am the Lord. We already looked at that. What's the next phrase? Your gods. Your gods. Now listen, there are very few people in this room who can say, your lover. When when someone, I, I just claim Meredith is my wife. No one else in this room gets to claim her in that way. And much the same way, God claims us relationally. This is relational terminology. And actually, this your is not the plural your. Your God. He's actually talking about a singular unit. A singular unit. I'm, he's talking about being married to us. That what actually, as people have studied this, all the Ten Commandments, have studied the shape of Deuteronomy and Exodus chapter 20, when they look at what they see is that what is going on here is what in the form of an old treaty called a covenant. It was a relational covenant. In particular, where they connected to the way a greater king would come to a lesser king and say, hey, here's how our relationship is going to work out. But God goes just he goes beyond simply a legal binding agreement. He adds a relational component to it. That is what marriage is. It's a covenant. God is in a is a relational God. He is, he is God is not an it, he is a he. He is personal. And this is why when God looks at Israel throughout their history, when they fail to obey his laws, he says, I am a jealous God. And what we see is that God will look back in the history of Israel at this covenant on Mount Sinai, this giving of the law, that this is a covenant like a covenant of marriage, so much so that God, the way he will refer to himself and his relationship with Israel is as a husband to a wife. And that when they fail to actually keep his laws that they are not living out faithfulness as God's spouse. This is why we have the book of Hosea. You know the story of the book of Hosea? Where God calls one of his prophets, a man named Hosea, he says, go and marry a prostitute named Gomer. That's what it was like. He's speaking, it was a parable to Israel saying, that's who you were when I found you. That's who you were. And I brought you to myself and I married you and yet you ran away and served other lovers. That's the God, that's the kind of relationship I have with you. And so I pursue you like a husband to ransom you back and to make you mine. And so what God is doing in Deuteronomy is he is establishing his marriage covenant with Israel. And so what is the role of the Ten Commandments within that covenant? The Ten Commandments in covenantal language are the stipulations. They're the promises of fidelity. They're the promises of what it looks like to say, I'm going to love you all the rest of my days. I'm going to be faithful to you all the rest of my days. And here is what my faithfulness looks like. God says, if you want to be a good spouse to me, you want to be a good covenant partner to me, then you fulfill these laws, these ten stipulations. If we don't obey, if we ignore God's law, here's what this means. If we ignore God's law, it is not simply an arbitrary legal act. It is a deeply relational offense because you're acting unloving towards your God. That's what it is to violate the Ten Commandments. 
To say to God, God who says that the summarization of the moral law of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And what we say when we violate God's law is, God, I don't love you. And yet to keep God's law is to say, God, I do love you. So you want the law to be a delight to you, you've got to see it in context of our relationship with God. It is covenantal. It's a way of showing God, you love him. Now you might look at this and go, why in the world does God want me to show him love? Well, just think about this. Let me give you the illustration, see if I can further illustrate it this way. And I'm totally stealing this illustration from a pastor in Atlanta named Randy Pope, who's at Perimeter Church. And I'm going to put it in my own words, in my own context. So here's, here's the context I'm going to give you to try to describe why we should keep the Ten Commandments and how important they are. Let me put them in relational terms. Imagine that when my wife and I, before we got married... We dated for a very short period of time. We only dated for about three and a half months before we got engaged. Because when you know, you know. And my wife knew I was such a catch that she had to put a ring on it in a hurry. But so we hadn't, we hadn't, I mean, three and a half months, right? So we're going to premarital counseling. And so imagine one day near the end of our premarital counseling, just maybe weeks before we're about to get engaged, I pull Meredith aside after premarital counseling. I go, I, I give her a call and say, I'm really troubled by some things going on. And, and I think I'm, I'm really afraid after our discussions with the pastor about, about marriage that we might have some radically different expectations to how we're going to go about this relationship. So, so why don't we get together and let's talk about it. So she can tell I was very disturbed on this phone call. And so we get together and we're, we're going to have this conversation. And I say, okay, well, here's the issue. I want to make sure my expectations are really clear. First, um, first and foremost, I, I'm going to love being married to you. I love you so much. You're beautiful. You're lovely. It's going to be great. But listen, I, as wonderful as you are, I'm going to want to hang out with a lot of other women. And, 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 date, and date around. In fact, I might actually put some other women and make them more important than you from time to time. That doesn't mean I don't love you. It just means I want to hang out with them more. Is, is that okay? That's one, of my, that's one of my expectations. Here's the next expectation. I, you, know, you know, I'm quite the catch. And so I, I, had, um, I had lots of really great dating relationships. And I had a great time with some of those women. And I have some great pictures from those days. And so around our house, I'm going to expect that um, that ski trip I took with her, what's her name? I want that plastered all over the wall. I mean, I, I want, I mean, she was beautiful. I want to remember her. I mean, those were some good days. And so that, that's, a nice, that's a really important expectation. And also, hey, when I'm not with you, I know that I have this ring that talks about how I'm, 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 I'm faithful to you. I'm going to take it off from time to time when I'm not with you. All right, is that okay? Oh, and one last thing, one last thing. You seem to be somebody who really loves quality time. Like you want to go on a date at least once a week. Like once every seven days. Uh, listen, I, that's great. That's, uh, okay, that's something that you, I, I'm not sure I can give you a date once every seven days. So if you're expecting me to kind of dedicate a night or an evening once, at a, once a week, that's an expectation that I just can't live up to. I, I'm thinking maybe, maybe once a month I'll dedicate some time to you. It's, that's the expectation. Now, if I said that, what would you say about when I claim to love her? Would that claim to be love, would it ring true? No. You would say you're a moron and you don't love her and she should run away from you as fast as she possibly can. Well, this is what God is saying to us. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no graven images. I don't want the images of other gods in your life. You shall honor my name. You shall keep the Sabbath holy. You shall spend time with, dedicate a day every week to me. Listen, if we're going to be married, if we're going to be in this relationship together, these are the rules. And if you love me, then you'll, you'll live like this. This is how important, in other words, what I'm communicating to you is that the law of God should delight you because it shows you how you love God. And if you love God, you keep his commandments. This is not just an Old Testament issue, is it? It's a New Testament thing. Listen to what Jesus has to say. In John chapter 14, verses 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my 
commandments. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. And by this we know that we have come to know him, that is Jesus, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you not a new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. You shall love the Lord your God. And 2 John verses chapter 1, verse 6, And this is love, that we should walk according to God's commandments. Listen, the law should delight you because it's the means by which you know how you can love your covenant God. Now let me describe why this should be a relief and a delight to you. You ever been in a relationship where somebody plays hard to get where someone plays coy with you, where you're constantly wondering, how do I love this person? There is that, if I could describe it this way, it's that great scene from the notebook that has now been turned into a million memes and gifs, in which the guy looks at the girl and he goes, what do you want? What do you want? Tell me what you want. Husbands, how many times have you said that? I want to love you. Tell me what you want. I will do whatever it is. Isn't that beautiful that God would actually tell you what he wants? You don't have to guess. He is not playing hard to get and he is not playing coy with us. If you love God, you will long to do what he views as loving to him. This is to be your delight. This is why the, 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 the Old Testament writers, why the New Testament writers say, man, this is a joy to know God's law because I can know how I can love my God better. Well, we come to the third and, and final reason for this morning as to why the law, we have a, have a new perspective in order to see the law as a delight. And that is you have to see it in light of God's grace towards us. Listen, I, those first two points I think are, are true. God's authority, if you live under it, you will experience freedom and delight and joy. You'll see God's law as something that gives you life, doesn't sap it from you, doesn't take it from you. But the ultimate truth is this, is you can look at the law of God and the difficulty for all of us and what we, what we see here in our catechisms and what we see throughout the story of the Bible is this. Do the people of Israel keep God's law? No. Do you keep God's law? Absolutely not. In fact, the people of Israel, Moses can't even get the, down the mountain before they're building an idol to another god. An idol, a graven image for themselves to worship Listen, but I want you to see, in order to actually view the law ultimately as a delight, is you have to view it in light of God's grace towards us. And this is really critical. There is a thinking in many people's minds that God's law has to do with the Old Testament. And that God's grace, his gospel, has to do with the New Testament. But this can't be further than the truth. The Old Testament is about law and grace, and they go together. And understand this, the New Testament is about law and grace, and they go together. And you say, where is that? Where is the law and the grace? Where is that seen? Where is the gospel in the Old Testament? It's here in verse 6. You have to understand the order of things. Verse 6 says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I rescued you from slavery. I established a relationship with you, and now I am giving you the law. That is of unbelievable importance. And it should reframe the way you see the Old Testament. That what we have in the Old Testament is the gospel in early form. It is a little more nebulous. It becomes clarified in Jesus Christ. But what we have here, are the, does God come to the people of, of Israel and say, he sends Moses, they're crying out in their slavery to the Egyptians, and he says, here's, does he give them the Ten Commandments of the burning bush and say, hey, take these to the people of Israel, and if they, can, if they can perfectly keep six of them, then I'll save them from slavery. Is that what he does? No. God first redeems the people of Israel, and then gives them the law. This is of radical importance in how you view the law. We cannot get this backwards. There is a gospel pattern here that is seen. 
That God's deliverance comes and in the context of God's grace and redemption given to us out of his free goodness to us, he then calls us to love him by keeping his commandments. The fulfillment of commandments is not the means by which you establish a relationship with God. It is the means by which you express and delight in your relationship with God. This is a radically different way in which you can view the law. God says, I saved you, I rescued you, I made you my people first, and then I have given you ways for you to love me. And in this, I'm wanting to correct two two really big issues, two mistaken views of the relationship between law and gospel, between law and grace. Here are the two, two mistaken views. The first is this, that some view the law incorrectly because they see the law as a means of meriting God's acceptance. The law is a means of meriting acceptance with God. You, understand this very clearly, you can't earn or merit God's acceptance through law keeping. You cannot win for yourself a right relationship or salvation with God through your own law keeping. In fact, this is not just a little bit of an error. This is a misunderstanding of the entire purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was never given to the people of Israel for them to try to save themselves and get themselves into relationship with God. Instead, it was actually, first and foremost, to show them how utterly rotten and sinful they really were. It displayed to them. It shows us. The the law shows us our true condition. The function of the law has never been, in the Old or in the New Testament, has never been for the purpose of bestowing salvation on us, but actually to convince us of our need of salvation. You got that? It is, not the, it is not the function of the law to bestow on us salvation through law keeping, but to show us, to convince us of our need of salvation. The law is to show us how sinful you are. To vanquish and put an end to any notion that we are good people, that we are, are pure, that we are respectable, that, and actually to communicate to us that we are actually we are sinful, corrupt, depraved, shameful, and guilty. One old theologian put it this way, Satan would have us prove ourselves holy by keeping the law. Satan would have us prove ourselves holy by keeping the law. The law which God gave to prove us to be sinners. That the devil and the great lie that he communicates to us is that he, that the law is given to us as a means of showing that we are holy and right with God when in reality the law has been given to us to show us that we are not right with God and that we are sinners. The law is perfect. It is pure. It is clean. And you are not. And the closer you get to God's law, the more you see, the more you study God's law, the more you see that you are impure, that you are not righteous, that you are not clean. It's always amazing to me, Christians, people who claim to be Christians, are stunned by their sinfulness. Hey, maybe you should go to AA or celebrate recovery. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I have a drink, a few too many drinks every once in a while, but I'm not like one of those people. Hey, that pornography addiction you've got, maybe you're a sex addict and you actually need to get an an accountability. Oh, wait a second. Okay, now listen, I've made a few mistakes but I'm not, a, I'm not a creep. I'm not, I'm not gross. I'm not a sex addict. That's Tiger Woods. That's not me. We're stunned by our own sinfulness. I'm not a pervert. But understand this. What is the first question that we ask when you become a member of this church? Are you a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving God's displeasure in his wrath? In order to join this church, the first declaration you have to make is this. I am the worst of sinners. And this is why the church of Jesus Christ is so great. Because the first requirement to joining the church of Jesus Christ is to admit that you don't have what it takes to join. That you don't deserve to be there. The law, the law can't save you. In fact, it's powerless to save you. In fact, the law is there to condemn us, to show us how desperately we need salvation. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. This is the New Testament perspective. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. 
a curse. In other words, if you're to rely on doing the law, obeying the commandments in order to make yourself right with God, then you are going to be under a curse. It means that all the law comes with stipulations. Hey, if you don't obey, this is the bad thing that's going to happen. And so if you try to make yourself right with God by obeying, then those bad things are going to happen because you can't keep the law. It goes on to say in Galatians 3.10, For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, what it's saying is this. You're cursed not because the law in and of itself is bad. It's because it displays how bad you are. It gives you the law and you can't do it. Therefore, inevitably, you'll be cursed by the law. You can't keep the letter of the law, and you definitely can't keep the spirit of the law. This is what Jesus blows wide open with the Pharisees, who are all about keeping the letter of the law. And in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, in what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives this great exposition, his longest sermon, where he expounds of all places on the law. And he shows that it's not simply about letter, the, keeping the letter of the law. For example, do not murder. Now, most of us in here, we're going to look at that, that commandment in a couple weeks. And most of us could walk in the room in, in a given week about murder and go, I got this one. I'm good. That Sabbath keeping one, honoring parents, eh, not so good. The murder one, I got it. I ain't slaughtered anybody. I ain't killed anybody. And then Jesus puts an end to that sweet thinking. And he goes, if you've ever been angry with someone or hated one of your brothers then you've committed in your heart to the act of murder. You have violated the spirit of the law. Also understand this. Every person who's looked at the law, when they would exegete the law, it is, you're going to hear it in these negative terms, like do not commit adultery, do not steal. Now, with that, it's a shorthand. It's not just telling you what you can't do. It's also communicating to you what you must do. In other words, when the commandment of God's law says do not murder, it's also telling you that you are responsible to ensure that those around you, that your neighbor flourishes, that you do the opposite of murder. This is where we, this puts a silence to anyone who would say that it's important not to care about justice issues because the commandments of God's law demand it. Demand it. The positive demands of the law. You can't keep up. So the law tells us that we're creeps and that we're sinners, that we, are, that we need God's, God's salvation. And then the law does this. It points to us how much we need Jesus. It's not there to save us. It's there to point us to the fact that we need salvation. And there it points forward to Jesus. The law shows us who we are and shows us how desperately we need him. And we understand this, that what Jesus came to do is he came to fulfill the law perfectly. He came to live a righteous life on your behalf. You couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. No one could do it. David, Moses, Elijah, no one could do it. Only Jesus actually fulfilled the law. And not only that, not only did he fulfill the law, but he took your penalty for your lack of law keeping. He took all of the law demands. Jesus did this so that we could receive the blessing that his righteousness deserved. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. Which means this, Jesus took all of your lack of law keeping and got all that that deserves, all of God's wrath, and he gave you all his law keeping on your record so that you get everything Jesus deserves. That's the gospel. And therefore what you do is you say, I have nothing in my hands I bring. I simply trust in Jesus' work alone. This is why the, God, why the law is there. Not so you can merit your salvation, but you can see how far short you come from meriting it and look to the one who does merit it on your behalf. That's why the law is there. Don't get this backwards. But also see that the gospel is in the Old Testament as well. You must begin to see that there is more continuity to the scriptures than discontinuity. And when the, God, when the Bible moves from Old to New Testament, that is not two different ways of salvation. It is simply revealing more of the same salvation. Looking forward to Christ and looking back to Christ. So here's a second incorrect view that we have to correct this morning. And that's this. So first we correct that you can merit your salvation by law keeping. The second correction is this. There are those who incorrectly view the law of God when you say the law has nothing to do with the gospel. Or the law is separate from the gospel. You cannot separate God's commandments to love Him by law keeping in the good news of Jesus Christ. In both the Old 
and the New Testament, God's redemptive work comes first and then commands are given. The gospel, here's the point, the gospel leads to law-keeping. Salvation from Israel, the people of God in Israel were supposed to say, He is so great, look at His redemptive work. How could we do anything else but love this God and follow Him and do what He commands? In the same way, how much more for us in the, in the time after Jesus? That we see all that He has done for us, His great redemption, His unmerited favor, that He saves us, delivers us, sets us free, rescues us, and then we, how could I do anything else but love this God by doing what He commands? Both the Old and the New Testament views law-keeping not as the means of our freedom and not as the means of our salvation, but as the means of expressing our freedom and our salvation. Because the story of the Bible is this. It's not that you did a few bad things. The Bible actually says that you were enslaved to sin. That you could do nothing else but break God's law. But in the gospel, he's come to set you free so that you might actually keep God's law finally. Here's the New Testament perspective. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. The classic passage on being saved by grace through faith. But here's where it goes. Here's what it says. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. It's not of any of your works. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Why did God save you by grace through faith? Unto good works. So that you might actually keep the law. Titus 2, chapter, uh, t- verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. And here's what it does. The gospel of salvation. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us for himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. The mercies of God and the salvation of God and the grace of God is the great motivation and the great means of actually finally keeping God's law. And you can do it with joy and delight because you know your salvation does not depend on your law keeping. You can do it simply for what reason? Because you love him. Simply because you love him. Now understand this. this, this what I'm correcting here is not a a, a, just a weak Christianity. I'm correcting and saying that to say that you, are, you merit your salvation through law keeping is a different religion, holy, altogether different. Here's the saying religious people say this I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel says this I am accepted, therefore I obey. Those are, that is a worldview changing. Perspective. Those orders matter. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Christianity and the gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. God said, I establish my relationship with you by grace. I continue my relationship with you by grace. I bring you finally home by my grace. The worst news in the world that you can be given is this, is that you're saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. That's the worst news in the world. But the best news in the world is this, is that you are loved and you are right with God right now because Jesus kept them all for you. And now you get to simply enjoy loving God by obeying him. You see, the law is given for your good. The law is given to guide you and to lead you to God. And if we view it in light of God's grace and his love towards us, that grace and I grace and God's love will always lead us and empower us to actually keep God's words. In other words, the law will never be a delight to you until you see that the power to obey it comes from this, that you have been loved by God. That is always prevenient. It is always first. What makes a mother run into a burning building? Is it because there's some rule that says, Moms, if you have children in a burning building, you, there is a law that requires you to run into the burning building, and if you don't do so, you lose your motherhood. Your motherdom, no. Why does a mother run into a burning building to save her child? 
Because she loves that child. Why do we obey God? Because he first loved us. And this is our response to him because his love satisfies our hearts and it becomes the greatest delight of our lives to live for him. Have you been set free by that fact? Listen, if you're not set free by that fact, then this series, the next 12 weeks, are going to be hell. Hell. But if you have been set free by that fact, then you can view all these things that we're going to look at over the next 10 to 12 weeks and go, Jesus kept that for me. And now with all of my might and by the goodness of God's Holy Spirit, I will try to love him in this way. There was a woman who was brought up under the slave block. She was beautiful and she was lovely. There's a story like this in every culture known to man. She was beautiful and lovely, but she was no good to work in the fields. She was too slender. She was, seemed too soft. And yet when she went up for auction on the slave block, men leered at her and the bidding for her went up and up and up. And it was clear why. As they looked at her with lurid eyes as to why they were bidding on this woman. But finally, as the bidding went up, one man skyrocketed the price and went beyond everybody and he paid for her. And as he walked up to claim her as his own, she looked at him and she said with defiant eyes and said, I will never do anything you ask me to do. I will fight you every moment of my life. And she spat on him. And the man's response was, young lady, I did not buy you to own you or buy you to use you. I bought you to set you free. And so her response was, okay, then I will follow you wherever you will go. That's the gospel. Let's pray. God, there are those in this room who have grown up in places where the, church, where the law the law was used as a hammer to crush them. To keep them in line. Lord, maybe they grew up in, an actual, in legalism where it was actually taught that they're saved by law keeping. Maybe their church culture and family church culture was simply just legalistic. Where they said we're saved by grace... But the ethos of the room was that you're actually saved by your good works. Oh God, redeem us from that false religion. Redeem us from that lie from the pit of hell. God, it is from Satan and it smells like smoke. And usher us into the grace of Jesus Christ. The one who did all that was necessary, who kept the law for us who has set us free so that we may come into a life and life abundant that is found where we get to delight in law keeping simply as a means of lifting our hands up in praise and worship to you, delighting our master and our God, our father and our husband. Oh, set us free, God. Set us free unto good works. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.